Greetings, and welcome to the fifth Poetry Cast. I'm your host, Jonathan Stone, recording from Portland, Oregon, and today we're going to talk about Robert Pinsky, the Poet Laureate of the United States from 1997 to 2000. If you've listened to previous episodes, then you know that we've mostly been discussing the poetry of Pablo Neruda. I've completed translating 53 of his 100 sonnets, but I'm taking a break for a while to work on some of my own original writing. Anyway, Pinsky was here in town this past month, and I went to listen to his lecture on poetry and music. Now, I really wanted to share some of my experience with you, but I wasn't sure how to segue into talking about Robert Pinsky from having talked about Pablo Neruda for so long. First glance, the two poets hardly have anything in common. That is, besides the fact that both are, both men are such great poets. I thought that with April being National Poetry Month, that I could somehow use that as a common thread. However, while listening to Pinsky talk, he disclosed a rather fortuitous piece of information about himself. That his favorite poet is none other than Pablo Neruda. So, there it is. My surprisingly providential segue into today's episode. Pinsky has written many books, including Sadness and Happiness, An Explanation of America, History of My Heart, I Want Bone, The Figured Wheel, and Jersey Rain. The last of which I purchased at his lecture and asked him to sign as an excuse to meet him. My reasons for choosing that particular title mostly involved my own New Jersey past. I was born in West Orange and lived in New Jersey for 20 years before moving to Oregon. Therefore, I bought Jersey Rain, first published in 2000 by Farrar, Strauss, and Garreau, publishers based in New York, the city that raised me. I'm going to read a poem from that book now titled The Green Piano, which Robert read during his lecture that focused on the relationship between music and poetry. Here it is, The Green Piano, from Jersey Rain. Aeolian, gratis, great thunderer, Half-ton infant of miracles, torn free of charge from the universe by my mother's will. You must have amazed that half-respectable street of triple-decker families and rooming-house house-painters. The day that the bull-ankled, oversized hams of your legs bobbed in procession up the crazy paved front walk embraced by the arms of Mr. Poppick, the seltzer man, and Corridan, his black-skinned helper, tendering your thighs thick as a man up our steps. We are not reptiles. Even the male body bears nipples, as if to remind us we are designed for dependence and nutriment, past into future. Oh, Europe, they budged your case, its ponderous guts of iron and brass, ten kinds of hardwood and felt, up those heel-pocked risers and treads splintering tinder. Angelic nurse of clamor, yearner, tinkler, dominator. Oh, elephant, you were for me. When the tuner Mr. Otto Van Brunt pronounced you excellent despite the cracked sounding board, we obeyed him and swabbed your ivories with hydrogen peroxide. You blocked a doorway and filled most of the living room. The sofa and chairs dwindled to a ram and use, cowering. Now the colored neighbors could be positive we were crazy and rich. As we thought the people were who gave you away for the moving out of their carriage house. They had painted you the color of pea soup. The drunk man my mother hired never finished antiquing you, ivory and umber, so you stood half done, a throbbing, mistreated noble, genuine. My mother's swollen livestock of love, lost one, unmastered, you were the beast she led to the shrine of my genius, mistaken. Endlessly I bonged according to my own chord system, Humoresque, the talk of the town, what I'd say. Then one day they painted you pink. 
Pink is how my sister remembers you the Saturday afternoon when our mother fell on her head. Dusty pink as I turn on the bench and my sister's memory to see them carrying our mother up the last steps and into the living room, inaugurating the reign of our confusion. They sued the builder of the house she fell in. With the settlement, they bought a house at last, and one day when I came home from college, you were gone, mahogany breast, who nursed me through those years of the concussion, and there was a crappy little Baldwin acrosonic in your place, gleaming walnut shell. You were gone, despoiled one, pink one, forever green one, white and gold one, comforter, a living soul. I like what he does with the birth imagery and connotations. The green piano is both birthed, in a sense, by his mother, as well as a nurse and breast for him as he matured. However, although he addresses this poem to the inanimate piano, he addresses it in an affectionate manner as an ode. He accomplishes this with his metaphoric, anthropomorphic references such as thighs, guts, beast, elephant. And finally, he ends his ode with claiming it had a living soul. The elephant reference is clever in that not only does it refer to its size, but also, of course, to the fact that it had ivory keys. Furthermore, he refers to the piano as a noble, which no doubt links its history with its association with the upper classes, as well as, ironically, with his own family, who were not European, nor were they of the nobility. Nevertheless, the piano carried the symbol of such status, albeit a somewhat imperfect symbol in its own imperfections. Pinsky describes a piano as out of place in this regard, and as a matter of fact, out of time as well, does he seem to perceive his own place of residence. Pinsky ended his lecture with a poem from the Romantic Era, written by John Keats in 1819, titled Ode to a Nightingale. The poem was fitting in that it is essentially an ode not exactly to the nightingale, but to the bird's song. In case you haven't heard this poem before, or if you haven't read it in a long time, I'm going to do so here. Here it is, John Keats' Ode to a Nightingale. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains, one minute past, and left wards had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beechen green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a drought of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth, Tasting of flora and the country green, Dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, Full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, With beaded bubbles winking at the brim And purple-stained mouth, That I might drink and leave the world unseen And with thee fade away into forest dim. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget That thou among the leaves hast never known The weariness, the fever, and the fret, here where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards. Already with thee, tender is the night, and happily the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light. 
save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through murderous glooms and winding mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs. But in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet, wherewith the seasonable month endows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn, and the pastoral anglantine. Fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musk rose, full of dewy wine. The murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a musid rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath, now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. While thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy, still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when sick for home. She stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft-times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn. Forlorn, the very word is a bell to toll me back from thee to my sole self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is fain to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? In the preface to his book, Lyrical Ballads, Williams Wordsworth describes what he believes poetry is, and in a sense should be. Spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, he says. Keats's poem feels spontaneous in that he hears a nightingale, which then ignites a series of associations, wakes the muse, and produces his ode, of which he is more of a conduit for the poem rather than its creator. In other words, he's more of an interpreter, but yet a recorder. The etymology of, for the word recorder is derived from Middle English when it meant a kind of judge, or to practice a tune or melody. And this is exactly what Keats sees himself as in his ode, a recorder. Furthermore, the Romantic poets such as Wordsworth and Keats desired for their poetry to describe their feelings, the feelings that all human beings share, such as desire, melancholy, joy, sorrow, etc., and therefore made their poetry universal rather than particular. Or to put it another way, poetry prior to the Romantics was often written to present an argument or to teach a moral lesson rather than to bring together poet and reader under the common poetic expression, which at its very core is what makes us most human. Empathy. I believe Pincy's poem accomplishes his act as well as Keats's. When I read their works or when I hear others do so, there is a connection made between us, as I hope there is here between you and I. Despite the absence of my physical presence, you hear my voice and weigh my thoughts expressed by my words, as well as my feelings expressed by my syntax and in the intonation of my voice. I wish to do something that I haven't done before on the show, which is read an original poem of my own. Up until this point, I've only read the works of others, as well as some translations. But now I'd like to share with you a poem inspired by Robert Pinsky's lecture. In his lecture, he discussed the insoluble bond between poetry and music, and he used Charlie Parker's music as an example of the blend of the two. His music, despite a lack of words, evokes certain thoughts and emotions in his listeners. 
through the sole means of tone and melody, he speaks to us something universal, something magical in that saxophone of his. Here's my poem inspired by these feelings and events. It's called That Brass Bell. <clears throat> oh, the first note, the sound that rounds and echoes over and over, above and below. That brass bell full of notes, you called it. A brass sculpture that sings the links in a long chain, usually an alto or in tenor melody, you said. Charlie invented it, because before he lifted that reed to his pursed lips, it was only a sculpture, not yet an instrument, not yet a golden weapon of expression that blew the minds of all those who stood before it. Although its weight tested the skills of many men before, they could not rattle the armor of their foes, they could not crack the helmets of those Trojan soldiers, armed to the bone with their knowledge and with their culture. But who knows what Homer would have done had he been given the chance to blow on that brass bell to wield that saxophone. His enemy surely would have fallen into the dust of that distant shore, and all those who stood before it would have dropped to their knees in disbelief at the sound of such sublime melody. African musician, Hellenic poet, seems your songs are not so distant. As you can hear, the chain of inspiration flows from Robert Pinsky to John Keats to Charlie Parker to Homer to myself and to you. We're thus all linked through the sound of the muse, through the empathetic voice of poetry and music. Thank you for listening to Poetry Cast. I hope you remain subscribed, and if you aren't already, then please do so. The ratings help others discover this show. And although my shows are quite sporadic in their broadcasts, I assure you they will continue. And if you have any questions or suggestions, please send me an email at poetrycast at yahoo.com. Adieu.